Uh, grab a Bible. We're going to read the text together. It's 1 Corinthians 13, page 934, the Pew Bible. Um, whatever you've got at home is good, even if it's a different translation. This is uh, the love chapter. Maybe you've heard it before at a wedding, but believe it or not, Paul's not talking to couples. He's talking to all people, a little subset in uh, church in Corinth, but all people, this is, a, this is just what love is supposed to be. Beautiful description. Pay attention as you uh, read because you're reading the holy word of God. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, whole chapter. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. You can leave the book open. We're going to be thinking about it, talking about it. But I think what Paul's doing here is really raising the question, what does love look like from the foot of the cross? What does love look like from the foot of the cross? Now, he doesn't mention the cross and what we just read. But remember, he's already told his readers from the very beginning of this letter. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified the cross. He also says, and the message about the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Right, so what he, what he said from the very beginning is, the cross is what you need. The cross is all you need. The cross is the power of salvation. So whatever else I talk about, I'm always talking about the cross. That's, that's kind of what he's saying, right? So now that he's talking about love, we, we just understand he's, he's not pulling his ideas about love from the philosophers of the day, the ancient Greeks, not pulling his ideas about love from the popular music and songs of the culture. He's not 
pulling his ideas about love by looking inward and consulting his own feelings. No, he's, he's thinking about love at the cross. What does love look like from the foot of the cross? That's the question he wants his readers in Corinth uh, and us, I believe, to wrestle with today. Love bears all, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what does it look like? How might a clear view of the cross change the way we think about love? How might an experience of the cross give us a deeper experience or even a renewal of love? Because what I want you to hear today is there's no love like love at the cross. Let me help us get at this by telling you a story. Actually, true story. President's Day just a few weeks ago. There was a young man who came back from the park and he said this. He said, Dad, I saved some lives today. Think about that. This is, it's, the man was Anthony Alexander Jr., a 16-year-old African-American young man living just outside Philadelphia. School is out. It's President's Day, right? Just finished playing basketball with his friends. All of a sudden, a girl comes screaming up the hill, uh, help, help. Need help. What's going on? My friends are drowning. They've fallen through the ice. So immediately, Anthony Alexander Jr. pulls out his phone, calls 911. That's quick thinking. Runs down the hill after this child. And there, sure enough, in the midst of a frozen pond, there are three children, ages 9 to 11, thrashing in the water, struggling to keep their heads uh, above the surface as their bodies are chilling. One of them cried out, we're dying. <laughs> and Anthony, Anthony says, not today. <laughs> I love that. Quick thinking, he looks around, he finds this long, old, broken branch. He grabs it and he's able to fish one of the children, a boy, out with that branch. Can't reach the other two. What do you do? He looks at that ice and he knows on a warm February day, it is too thin for his body weight. And yet how long will it be before the first responders arrive? It would turn out later, by the way, that two police cars would crash on the way. They weren't hurt, but it just would slow down the response time. What do you do? Well, this young man, he takes that branch like a wooden cross beam he gathers his young life up into his hands and he steps out on that ice. One foot, another foot, another step, and crack. First leg goes in, second leg goes in, he's sucked under. It's so cold he can't even breathe, let alone swim, but he keeps moving. It keeps moving closer to those in the hole. As he moves through the ice, he finally gets to one of the girls and he clings her to his chest and he pulls her back to the bank and saves her. Then he jumps in again to go back after the third and final child. He's halfway there when the police arrive. Sergeant Patrick Kilroy jumps in, rescues the girl, pulls Anthony Alexander back out onto the bank to safety. 
Sometime later that day, Anthony Alexander, still dripping, freezing cold, shows up at the door of his father's house. He's home. Door opens and he says, Dad, I saved some lives today. Isn't that a great story? And that night, if you ask those three children, what does love look like? You know, as their parents are tucking them into bed, you know what they're going to say? Anthony Alexander Jr. That's what love looked like for them. Looks like a 16-year-old boy who gave his life away to save their lives. And so that takes us back to the cross, doesn't it? Do you see the cross in there? I mean, this is the story of the cross. The story of the cross is that we're all in the lake. All of us. We we might not know it, but we're all in there. We've broken somehow through the ice. We're struggling for air, and it's only a matter of time. But somewhere there is a house of eternal love. And a father sends his beloved son out into a dangerous world. And he hears our cries for help. Quickly, he thinks fast, dials 911, runs towards the danger with his life in his hands. Bearing a beam of wood. He sees you. And you cry out, I'm dying. And he says, not today. If anybody dies today, it's not going to be you. And this son steps out on the splintering ice until the currents of Sheol pull him down and wrap around his legs, taking him under and away until you finally somehow find your life gasping for air on a grassy bank, wrapped in the felt blanket of a police officer still clinging a barren branch of wood. That son will come home at last to his father's house and he'll say of you, Dad, I saved some lives today. There's no love like love at the cross. So so now I think we're in a position to see what love really looks like, aren't we? Let's just think about this. Fleming Rutledge is a great theologian. She writes, only from the perspective of the crucifixion can the true nature of Christian love be seen over against all that the world calls love. Only from the perspective of the crucifixion can we really see true love. There's a There's a love that the world talks about, but the the, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul is talking about a different love, isn't he? He's not talking about a sentimental love. He's talking about a gritty, dangerous, painful, sacrificial, serving love. A love that's willing to walk out onto thin ice. A love that's willing to break through to the chaos beneath. Love is, St. Paul writes, not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This is an understanding of love that comes, as as Fleming Rutledge says, from the perspective, only from the perspective of the crucifixion. 
And the Apostle Paul is trying to press the cross of Jesus into this little community and their shared life together in Corinth. He's trying to press the cross of Jesus into their love, to imprint deeply there the mark of this love. It's a serving love. Now the alternative is sentimentality. What is sentimentality? What do we mean by that? Sentimentality is love that's reduced to a feeling. Just a feeling. You know that you're dealing with sentimental love when you ask the question, how do I feel about you? (laughs) Or how do you feel about me? How do we feel about this relationship? Sentimental love is a love that stands on the shore. And and it looks out and says, if playing on thin ice is your thing, then you do you. Who am I to tell you differently? Sentimental love is the kind of love that says to itself, you know, I don't really feel like getting wet today. This is love that sends a valentine when what you need is a warm body and a piece of really solid wood. I have a young adult friend who's just published a new book. It's a good book. And in this book, he says, he argues that we all need to change our definition of love. So what's your definition of love? He says it needs to change. It's a good Lenten practice. His name is Chris Greer. And he says, he says, if you loved me, we tend to think and feel in the culture today, you would agree with my ideas, approve of my behavior, and endorse my choices. We tell one another, if you don't approve, you don't love. Right? But that's sentimental love. That's feel-good love. That's living with this idea that we can't both love someone and disagree with them. Right? That we can't both love someone and talk about the hard things together. This is the kind of love that says the measure of the depth of your love correlates only to the measure of the depth of your feeling or emotion. And Chris notices that Jesus is calling us to a different kind of love. And for example, he says, he tells the story of Jesus when he meets the man that's referred to as the rich young ruler in the Gospels. You know that story? Comes up this guy, he's literally drowning in his wealth, but he doesn't know it. And Jesus, though, has the courage to have what we call a courageous conversation with him. Jesus tells him, this is Mark 10, 21, sell what you own and give to the poor, to a rich guy. Now, how did that feel? Think about that. How did that feel? How did it feel for Jesus to say that? How did it feel for the young man to hear that? I mean, it just feels wrong, right? Mark tells us the man was shocked and he went away grieving. You can imagine him going, hey, where's the love, man, Jesus? Where's the love? Right? Well, here's what Mark says, that was love. You read this carefully in Mark's account. It's very interesting. Mark 10, 21. We read, Jesus looking at him, loved him. That's the same word Paul is using here in our text. Jesus loved him, agape love. Jesus loved him and said, you lack one thing, go and sell. It almost reads wrong to us. We go, oh, no, no, no. What Jesus, what you should be saying is, even though he loved him, he said. Right? Even though. No, it's because he loved him, he said. I mean, Jesus knows this is not a feel-good situation. Right? He knows this is not going to feel good for him. It's not going to feel good for the other. But he's not going for the good feeling here. He's going to help a man, to, to love a man, to serve a man. Serving love is what Jesus is after, not sentimental love. 
I know this is hard, but I'm thinking, what would the world be like if this is how we loved one another? What would the, the world we live in right now, what would it be like when someone says, you know what, I'm going to care enough about a coworker to tell them how their behavior makes me feel, even though they may feel defensive at first, but because of the cross. Or when a parent says, I, I'm going to set a boundary for my child, even though they may storm out of the room for a while, but because of the cross. Or when a child says, I'm going to be honest with my parent, even though they're clueless, and frankly, it's just easier that way, but because of the cross. Or when someone says, I'm going to stay close to someone I disagree with and keep listening, even though I just want to cancel them, but because of the cross. Or when someone says, I'm going to keep working on this relationship, even though the romance has long since drained away, but because of the cross. Or when a church member, one of us, says, you know, I'm, I'm going to build a, a relationship with someone from a different culture, even though I feel safer and more comfortable with people like me, but because of the cross. You get it? See, this is cross walking. This is loving others the way God loves you at the cross. It's walking out the implications of the cross. Come on. They like that at the earlier service. <laughs> I, I kind of like it too. I'm getting some steps in. Imagine how different the world would be. Just imagine how different. Fleming Rutledge, again, she writes, only from the perspective of the crucifixion can the true nature of Christian love be seen over against all that the world calls love. Now this is where hard things happen. Hard things, but good things. This is where redemption happens. This is where reconciliation happens. And that's our mission, right? This is where our mission begins, right there at the foot of the cross. It's not sentimental love. It's serving love. There's no love like love at the cross. And so our Lenten practice this week, this is your assignment if you choose to accept it, is to serve. It's to find a fresh way to serve. I would invite you to come to upc.org slash Lent. If you haven't done it, pull down the uh, Lent guide. that will give you some good ideas for how to serve. Whatever you choose to do, let me suggest two things. First of all this, let Jesus serve you. Let Jesus serve you at the cross. Here's what I mean by this. I want to invite you to ask God to drain sentimentality out of your ideas about God. Ask him to drain sentimentality out of your ideas. See, here's the problem with sentimentality. It presumes a state of innocence. Sentimentality presumes a state of, intimacy, of in innocence. Flannery O'Connor, the great... A Southern American writer wrote this, sentimentality jumps right over the fall and redemption for, in her words, an early arrival at a mock state of innocence. We just jump right over the fall, the redemption of Jesus, and we just go right to innocence. A mock state of innocence, not real innocence. That's what sentimentality does, presumes that we're in this mock state of intimacy. In, in, <laughs> Uh, innocence, and that we don't really need a cross. This is going for love without a cross. Think about this for a second. Isn't it surprising that the cross ever would become a symbol of love? Right? Do you know, do you remember what this, this is 
an instrument of, of state-sponsored terrorism. Th- th- this, this was perfected by the Romans, not simply to kill people, but to torture them. The idea was to prolong their death as long as possible to keep them suffering. This wasn't just created to torture people. This was created to shame people. Naked, you hang on the cross. Vulnerable and exposed to your friends, your family. All of society as they walk by in a very public place and they see you hanging while your bodily functions drain out of you. Ultimately, the goal of the cross was to thoroughly dehumanize a person. How did it ever become a symbol of love that we would put you know, on our rearview mirrors or around our necks or that we would carry in our pockets. Well, Fleming Rutledge has a very interesting answer to that question. She says there's something about the cross that corresponds to something in us. That's not innocence. She says there's something sickening in human nature And it corresponds precisely to the sickening aspects of crucifixion. In other words, what she's saying is the crisis of the cross corresponds directly to the crisis of humanity. Directly to the crisis in me, in us. Are we really so naive to think it's surprising that we're still living with imperialism in the world? That war is still a reality in the world? Look at the cross. This tells us the crisis of human existence. And it's not going away by itself. We're like, we're still doing this? What? Yes. We need a savior. Anthony Alexander. He throws himself into the lake only because, but because there are drowning children in the lake. That's why he goes into the lake. And Jesus throws himself into violence only because that's where we are. See, he throws himself into shame, into the teeth of evil, into death itself, because that's where we are. And that's what's in us. So in in that sense, the cross is both diagnosis and cure. So what I'm saying is the first step that we need to take for service is to let Jesus serve us. We're in the lake. And the lake is in us. And if he should call you to the wood of his cross and say grab, then we would come just the way he calls and grab. We don't want to say to him, well, like Chris Greer says, the culture tells us, if you love me, you'd agree with my ideas. <laughs> if you love me, you'd approve of my behavior. If you love me, you'd endorse all my choices. Might just be that we're in the lake because of our ideas, behavior, and choices, right? Might be. And then if you'll forgive me, I'll quote John Calvin here. You knew it was coming, didn't you? Praise God. Calvin writes, God, who is the highest righteousness, listen to this, cannot love the unrighteousness that he sees in us all. God loves you, but he cannot love the unrighteousness in you because he's the highest righteousness. I I think if he were writing today, he'd probably word that a little differently. He'd probably say, God doesn't love your false self. 
He cannot love the false you that you have created and project for the rest of us to consume. That's not the one he loves. That's not the you he loves. He sees through that to the true you. He sees the true you that you can only now see, as Paul says, in a mirror dimly, but one day fully. He sees the you that is the you that will be you when his love is fully done with you. Right? Now I know only in part, St. Paul writes, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what would it mean for you to come to the cross of Jesus? This thing that has the power to strip away from us our false selves, layer upon layer upon layer. I mean, what would happen if you allow Jesus to love you in this way? To expose the crisis in you that corresponds to the crisis of the cross and to allow him to pull you up out of that, whatever it is, before it kills you. Chris Greer, my friend in his book, he also writes, Jesus' love is so deep that it refuses to allow us to give our lives to the things that take life away. Ah, I love that. Thanks, Chris. So what I'm saying is before we go out trying to love others with some kind of maladapted sentimental love, first let Jesus love us. Let him bring us here. Let Jesus serve you at the cross. That's the first step uh, this week. And then the second is find a way to serve someone else from the cross. Go out. I bet God's got somebody lined up for you, a situation ready for you. And it might be small. It might be like emptying the dishwasher this week, right? Come on, some of us. Yeah, all right, I hear it now. Yeah, amen. Emptying the dishwasher, making someone else's bed, washing the car, whatever, something small, or it could be something big. For some of us, it's gonna be something big, like diving into somebody else's chaos. Hearing someone say, I'm dying, and saying back to them, not today. Because you're willing to get close enough as a warm body to hold on to them and go through the chaos with them. I'm in this with you. I'm in this for you. This is where we say, please God, cross out the eye. And then we go serve. There's no love like love at the cross. Dad, I saved some lives today. I can hear that in heaven 2,000 years ago today. I mean, I can hear the unbegotten, immortal Son of God coming back to the heights of heaven in his ascension, back into the arms that once held him tight from time immemorial. God the Son at last back in the arms of God the Father rejoicing in the circle of God the Spirit. I saved some lives today. And the Father looking back at the Son after all they've been through and says, yes, you did, Son. Yes, you did. And then St. Paul would butt in. 
I mean, if St. Paul were there, he, he, he would want to have his word too. I hear St. Paul saying, yes, you saved my life. And yes, you saved the lives of my friends there in Corinth. And to this day, you're saving lives. Paul would say, because even the message about the cross has the power of God for salvation. And then the Holy Spirit would say, yes, yes. Because every time this story is told, I take a, a little shard of wood from the old rugged cross and I reach out to someone else and I say, grab it. You grab it. And then I pull them in. I pull them into the arms of this eternal loving embrace. Friends, this is the invitation for us today, isn't it? This is our invitation. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you are, grab the wood. Grab the wood. And allow that wood to pull you to the foot of this cross. Come with us to the foot of the cross. Experience a new kind of love. Find life in the one who gave his life for you. And if you do that today, somewhere in heaven, Jesus will be able to say again to his father, Dad, I saved some lives today. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, somehow your word assures us that you hear us right now. You hear my voice, but more importantly, you hear our hearts, each and every one of us. You look into the depths of our being, for you made us and you redeemed us. And you one day will make us new. We look forward to that day. But we confess today, we are in the swirl of chaos, violence, shame, we're lost. And so today we pray for salvation for ourselves and for others around us. Lord, there may be somebody that you brought to this moment of worship simply for them to hear these words, take my cross, grab it, grab the wood. We pray right now, for this person, that they will experience that call, that they will respond in faith, that they will say yes to Jesus. Together we pray with them, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for entering into my shame that I could enter into your glory. My death, that I might today, by saying yes to you, know that I have eternal life. God, we pray this we dare to pray this because it's what you most want for each of us. We pray it in your name. Amen.